Well, if you're uh, new here, visiting with us, this is a little different than what we're normally doing. Normally, we're somewhere in the book of the Bible going through verse by verse through the scriptures. And, but we are taking some time to study the important topic of the Holy Spirit. And last week we began, and what we were looking at was that it is possible for a Christian to be a Christian, to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, but miss out on the work that He wants to do in you. This can happen either because we're ignorant of His work. Remember the Ephesian believers in Acts 19, they said, we don't even know there was a Holy Spirit. So that can happen because of that, or it can happen because we're like the Galatian believers. We're trying to live the Christian life in our own efforts, in the flesh. And as Paul said to them, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect, mature in the flesh? And of course, the answer is no. In other words, we learned that a strong relationship with the Holy Spirit is essential if we're going to be more like Jesus. Now, a strong relationship with any person requires understanding to some degree who they are. The more you know someone, the the more you know and understand them, the better relationship you tend to have with them. And it's no different with the Lord. Uh, A strong relationship with the Holy Spirit starts with a proper understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and how He operates in our lives. Now, if we don't have a good relationship with the Holy Spirit, sometimes that's because of the teaching impact we've had in our lives. There are three misconceptions that you'll find in religious circles or things, Christian circles regarding the Holy Spirit, who He is. For example, you have this, what we call like a historic view of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's the doctrinal idea that we officially recognize and acknowledge the Holy Spirit, but practically He's ignored in our everyday lives. This is the belief basically that the Holy Spirit, He's God, but His main work was completed by founding the church and giving us the Scriptures. So now that we have the Scriptures, we have our training institutions, we have our methodology of how to do church, we don't really need to be seeking the Holy Spirit. So that historic view is a misconception. I I don't know about you, but I know for me, my marriage would go poorly if I said, well, hey, we've done the whole, you know, got married and we had some kids and they've gotten older now. We're kind of done, right? No, like it doesn't work like that, right? So in the same way, that's not a correct view of who the Holy Spirit is and His work in our lives. Another misconception that sometimes people who profess to be believers have about the Holy Spirit or the wrong teaching that's influenced them is what I would call the sensationalist view. The idea is now where the Holy Spirit is kind of seen like the superstar of the Trinity. You know, yes, there's God the Father and God the Son, but the Holy Spirit, He's the guy. And this belief is the concept that the Holy Spirit's has, has a greater importance than the Father and the Son now because, well, He's the one the Son sent to be with us. So, therefore, His blessings and His gifts, they are emphasized as either being equal to or even overriding the Scriptures. That is a wrong view of who the Holy Spirit is and the work that He does in our lives. The third misconception that we might have because of outside influences is what I would call the cultic view. This is, you'll find this common among, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. The view is that the Holy Spirit isn't even a person. The belief is that He is some type of a power or a force that God will use to get things done. You can't have a relationship with Him because, again, He's not a person. He's an essence or a force, and therefore He's not even considered to be part of the Godhead. He's just a a power that God uses to get His stuff done. Now, 
I don't know what your influences may have been in your life. I don't know. Maybe some of you may be thinking, that sounds kind of close to what I was taught. Or maybe, maybe not taught, but maybe in practice, that's kind of what you've understood the Holy Spirit to be. You believe in Him. We sing that song, I believe in God the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, three in one. I believe all that, but practically speaking, He's not really a part of your life or what's going on in the church. If you have any of these misconceptions or you fall somewhere in there, they always exist because of a failure to understand what the Bible says about who the Holy Spirit is and how He operates in our lives. So those are going to be kind of like a two-pronged task to kind of get correct understanding about the Holy Spirit. We will talk this morning about the first topic, which is who the Holy Spirit is. So it's a great question to start off with. Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, when we're defining the Holy Spirit, there's two important things we need to land on and understand and grasp. The first one is, is that He is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. So let's look at the Scriptures in John chapter 14. We'll start there. And we will be moving to a lot of places in the Scripture today. So if if you feel like I'm going a little quick or you missed something, don't don't worry. When we post our messages online, if you, you go look there, we list all the verses, the Scripture references, or you can just ask me and I'll say, oh, that was this verse. So let's look at John 14. We will reference quite a few scriptures in John because that's where uh, the gospel writer who records the most of the teaching of Jesus about the Holy Spirit. But when we're establishing that the Holy Spirit is indeed a person, not a force or an essence, one of the first reasons that we say that, we come to that conclusion, is because of the use of the personal pronoun he. So when we come down here to John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, note this. He says in verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, that He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees Him not, neither knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and shall be in you. Now, you maybe have heard me say in the past that there is this idea where, like, in our language, we don't have gender assigned to our words. I wouldn't have the same word for slob for… Uh, we have the same word for slob for a man or a woman. We have the same word for intelligent for a man or a woman. We would not use different words, but that is uncommon in language. English is unique in that. Most other languages, if you have any familiarity with, like, Spanish or other languages, you'll probably notice that they have words that are feminine and words that are masculine. Like if you use Japanese, if I understand it correctly, there are words for not just masculine, feminine, but like masculine who has a higher status than you, masculine has equal status, lower status, and the same for females. So there are a lot of different ways you could say a word and you need to make sure you say it correctly or you could offend somebody. New Testament language is, is no different. There are, nouns have a gender, either masculine, neutral, neutered, or feminine, three different ways. Now, you've heard me probably say in the past when I'm talking about demonstrative pronouns that you could know what the pronoun refers to because it has to match in gender, right? That is not true for relative pronouns, which relative pronouns refer to a personal, like a personal pronoun, a relative pronoun referring to something differently than a demonstrative pronoun. So context is important to understand, well, who's being referred to by this pronoun or what is being referred to. When Jesus, the word here for spirit in verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 17, is neuter. It's not masculine. 
But then Jesus goes out of his way and uses masculine pronouns to describe the Holy Spirit. He doesn't call him an it. He doesn't use the normal trend of how you would use a pronoun as you would say, okay, this word spirit is neutered, so when I'm going to use the pronoun to describe spirit, what it is, I'm going to use a neutered pronoun. But he doesn't. He switches and uses a masculine pronoun. That's not against the rules when you're talking about a relative pronoun, but it's when someone does that, it's for a purpose. In other words, Jesus didn't just shoot a word out there and then John wrote down he. Jesus specifically, multiple times, look at this, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither does it know him, but you know him for he. Do you see how many times he says it? It's almost like he's trying to tell us something. Look at John 16, 13. John 16, 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. I mean, there's a lot there, right? The idea here is that Jesus is going out of his way, even of conventional language, to repeatedly emphasize that the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. Okay? If we go back to John 14, verse 16, and we read here, and I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, we understand Father there to be masculine, right? So then why in the world would we all of a sudden read, He shall give you another comforter that it may abide with you forever? We would not. The appropriate way to understand it is that Jesus specifically used the word He to refer to the Father, and then He uses He to refer to the Holy Spirit, that He means He. He's a person. He's not an it. The second way that we know that the Holy Spirit's a person isn't just because of the use of the personal pronoun he, but the name of comforter is a term used to speak of a person who helps another person. Now, and I'm not making fun when I say this, so please don't take me that way. I don't want anyone to come alongside and tell me I'm making fun of people who have comfort animals. That's not what I'm saying. I realize in our culture that we don't necessarily just assign comfort to people. But in this word's usage, in that time period, there is nothing other than a human being that could be thought of when this word comforter is used. One person comforting another person. So when Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a comforter, he's not talking about a force or an it. He's talking about a person. The Holy Spirit is a person who is helping another person, us. Thirdly, if the Holy Spirit is a force or an essence, then that causes certain verses to make absolutely zero sense. Turn to Luke chapter 4 with me. Luke 4 verse 14. Luke 4 verse 14. Now, if we insert into this sentence power or force or essence, this no longer, sentence no longer makes sense. Luke 4, 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the power into Galilee. Does that make any sense? No, obviously. Now the sentence doesn't make sense. It only makes sense if it's a person who has power. It doesn't make any sense if we translated power or force. He returned in the force of the force. No, we're not. He's not a Jedi wasn't created by the the force. No. Power of the Spirit. Look at Acts 10.38. Peter is preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his family, and they're hearing the gospel as Gentiles, the first 
group of Gentiles we have recorded in Scripture that are hearing the gospel being preached to them by a Jew. So Acts 10.38, he's explaining what Jesus did when he came, and he says in Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. The sentence no longer makes sense if we say that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the power and power. That doesn't make any sense unless it's the Holy Spirit who has power, a person who has this dunamis, this dynamite power. So, he's a person. We, we know that because of the use of the personal pronoun he all throughout the Scripture. Uh, like some people say, well, what about that verse in Romans where it says, you know, it referring to the Holy Spirit? That's because it's a bad translation. It's a masculine pronoun in the Greek. It should be translated he. So, the use of the personal pronoun, the name comforter requires him to be a person. Translating spirit as force or essence causes the certain parts of the Bible to not make any sense. And then lastly, we see that the Holy Spirit has characteristics that other people, that people have, that a person has. For example, in, in John 14, 26, when Jesus is explaining again to the disciples that the Comforter's coming, the Holy Spirit's coming. In John 14, 26, Jesus has just told them, you know, I've spoken these things to you because I'm still with you, but I'm going away. So in verse 26 of John 14, he says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. The Holy Spirit teaches us and he reminds us. That's something a person does. I mean, I might watch my bird and learn a lesson or two. God might have something to teach me from like watching the bird. Like, don't be dumb like that. Don't be a bird brain. But they're not actually like sitting down and going, I want to remind you of something, Will. People do that. Are you telling me my animal's not a person? Yes. They're not a person. They're different. They're missing other personal characteristics of a person. But the Holy Spirit is. He teaches. He reminds Look at John 16, 13 again. It says in John 16, 13, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear. He hears and he speaks just like you and I do. Every letter to the seven churches in Revelation closes with the phrase, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He hears and he speaks. It's not a, a force doesn't do that. Romans 15, 30, Paul's asking the Christians in Rome to pray for him. Romans 15, 30, and he says, now I beseech you, brethren, Romans 15, 30, now I beseech you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. I'm praying for some things. He goes, strive for me in prayer too. But he says, how do we do it? Well, we do it through the Lord Jesus, through his help, and then through the love of the Spirit. There's, because the Holy Spirit loves us and he's working in our lives. The Holy Spirit loves. When we treat the Holy Spirit like he's an impersonal it, you don't interact in a, a love type of relationship with an it. 
There are certain things that like, I really like that I have, okay? I really like my recliner, all right? All right I really like my recliner, and, and I have a good relationship with my recliner, but it's not a love relationship. It doesn't love me, all right? It treats me well, but it does not love me because it's not a person. It's an inanimate object. The Holy Spirit loves, though. Romans 8.27, referring to how the Holy Spirit helps us to pray. This isn't He, Romans 8.27, He that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit has a mind. He has thoughts about things. He's not some mindless force that just gets directed by the Father. No, He has thoughts about things. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, it, it says that the Holy Spirit distributes gifts as He wills. He wants certain things. He has a will. He's not just, again, just willless and just kind of there, and then God directs him. No, he's a part of the Godhead, and he, is, he has desires. He has wants. He has things that he's, he's seeking to accomplish. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 31, Jesus warned the religious leaders. He says to them, and I think I, we read this last week, but, wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven unto men. And we talked about what that meant. The word blasphemy, it, it means to slander. And if the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and we slander that work, the Holy Spirit showing us that God is real, that Jesus is the, is the Messiah, that He died for our sins, that we need a Savior. He's showing us these things, and we slander Him. We go, no, that's not true. I refuse that. I reject that. There is no forgiveness for that. You can't get to heaven and just go, well, God, I know you're a forgiving God, and I'm pretty sure you have that covered. And the answer to that is no. You can't reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit drawing you to Christ, and you can't be forgiven for that if you remain in that resistance. So he can be slandered and blasphemed. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The word to grieve there is the same thing it would be to you. When, what does it say in Proverbs? It talks about how a wise son is a joy to his father, but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. It's the same idea. When you have people you love and you care about, and you're giving them advice, you're trying to help them out, and they just resist it, and they're like, I don't want to hear that. I'm going to go do it my own way. We can do the same thing to the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it says, quench not the Holy Spirit. You know, there are times when the Holy Spirit is urging us to step out and trust Him and to go do something, and we can quench that. We can put that fire out. He's giving us, He's equipping us and giving us giftings to go do something for Him, maybe to share the gospel or to encourage a brother or sister in Christ. We go, well, I don't want to do that. I mean, I, I had this appointment later I needed to be at. Or I don't want to miss this show. We can quench the work that the Holy Spirit's trying to do in us. That's not something you do to a, a force or an essence. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, when Ananias and Sapphira lie about the property they sold and the money, how much they sold it for, Peter said, you've not lied unto men, you've lied, un lied unto God. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. 
I have little conversations with our birds all the time. And if I lied to them, they wouldn't have a clue. They wouldn't have a clue. Because they're, they're not the same type of a thing. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. He's a person. So he has all these characteristics that a person would have. It's not a force or an essence. So the Holy Spirit, first off, if we're going to land properly on who he is, we need to understand that he's a person. The second thing we need to ground ourselves in if we're going to understand who he is is that he's not just a person, but he is God. He is God. And how do we know that the Holy Spirit's God? Well, when the Bible talks about him, it describes him with the attributes of God. Look to Psalm 139 with me. We read this in our scripture reading, and we'll reference part of it here again. But one of the attributes of God is that he is omnipresent. He's everywhere. That's something I can't be. I'm, I'm limited to, to a time and a space. My matter is limited to a time and a space. My matter, that is me, cannot be at, while I'm at one space at one time. I can't be in another space at another time. God is not limited that way because he's God. He is unique. And so he is unlimited in his ability to be in time and space. He can interact outside of time, with time. He is beyond our comprehension in that matter, but that's what he is. That's how the Bible describes him. It's what we know to be true about him. Well, the Holy Spirit is described this way as well. In Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, David says, Whither shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? He says, if I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I ascend up into heaven, I go to be with you, you're there. You are in a place that only, the Spirit is in a place only God can be. If I go into the grave, that's what the word hell there refers to, the grave. We sing the songs about that a lot, you know, you conquered hell. It's using old King James language, but it's referring to the grave. You conquered the grave. That's why that song said, even death could not conquer you. you. You prevailed over it, and then resurrecting then, resurrecting now. That's why that line works, but it uses the word hell because it's referring to the grave. David says, if, if I die, I, I go into the grave. I can't escape you there. You're there. Wherever I go, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. Even there shall your, right, your hand lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. The Spirit of God is, is omnipresent. He has that attribute of God. Another attribute of God is that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. We see the Scriptures give this attribute to the Holy Spirit as well. Just in the same way as that I cannot be everywhere at once or even be more than one place at once, I, I'm not omniscient. If I would say that there were like top five things that are wrong with our culture today, one of them is this. We think we know what's going on in someone else's head. We think we know what's going on in someone else's heart, right? I would say that probably 75% of my arguments with my wife have been based on the fact that they're needless because I assumed something that wasn't true. You've probably heard me tell the toast story before. No? All right, here we go. So we're newly married, and you know how newly married people are. You fight a little bit, right? And because you're newly married, and for most of us, you're jammed into a little tiny apartment for the first time, living with somebody else that you're married to. It's totally different. You can't operate in your own way, so you kind of bump heads a lot, and there's nowhere to go, so you scrap it out, right? 
You get a bigger home, that's why. Can, you know? No, I'm joking. <laughs> joking. Totally joking. So, no. so we, were, we were newly married. It's probably about four or five months in, and, and Bev's cooking dinner. We've been fighting. We've just been at it, and we've been arguing, whatever. And, and she's cooking dinner, and you know, she puts my dinner in front of me, and I, I've been saying some snarky stuff, and she said some things too. And so I put my head down, I start eating, and all of a sudden, two pieces of toast hit me in the head. And I look up, throw my, you know, throw my fork down, and I look up, and I'm like, and now why are you throwing toast at me? Now, she's on the opposite side of the kitchen. Not a big kitchen, mind you, but it's the opposite side, which means logic would dictate she didn't throw the toast at you, Will. But I'm not thinking that way, because I know everything. So she looks at me, and she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you threw the toast at me. The toast just hit me in the head. Look, the toast is all over the floor. She goes... I didn't throw the toast to you. We had a very overactive toaster. <laughs> very overactive. But I'm not thinking that in that moment because why? I know everything. I assumed I knew what was going on. She's just mad at me and so she would throw toast at me. <laughs> Even though that's completely illogical, my wife has never thrown an object at me. She's punched me but never thrown an object <laughs> at me. Pride. We presume to know what's going on in someone's heart. It's why our culture, on every side, just labels people a certain way. Oh, you, you believe that? Oh, you're just like this group. It's like, I'm an independent thinking human being. <laughs> I can say that and not share every attribute with that whatever group you're trying to associate me with. But we presume, we assume. Truth is, we know very little. God is the only one who's all-knowing. He knows everything. And what's interesting here is when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that same attribute is ascribed to the Holy Spirit here. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, Paul's been explaining the, the beauty of the gospel and all the things God has in store for us. Not, not heaven. In fact, I would say, no, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. I don't think that's referring to heaven at all contextually. He's talking about all the good things God has for us. And he says, well, how am I sharing all this with you? It's because I'm so smart, because I know everything? And Paul says, no, 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 no. God revealed them unto us. We're sharing them with you because God revealed them to us. And who was the one who revealed all these things? His Spirit. And how can the Holy Spirit know these things? For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. So the Holy Spirit's not just some like enlightened power or something out there, and he just knows a lot. You know, he's been around a long time. He knows a lot more than you. No, that's Satan. Limited knowledge, been around the corner a lot longer than you have. I guess the phrase is around the block. I mess up metaphors, I'm told. He knows a lot more than you, but he doesn't know everything. And so here he says he doesn't just know, searches all things, but he knows even the deep things of God. He knows what's in the very depths of the heart of God because he is God. He's all-knowing. And Paul explains, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Remember that next time you want to assume the worst about your spouse or your parents or your kids or your coworker. You don't know everything. I tend to do better now, and we fight a lot less. And the reason is, is because both of us will come and be like, hey, 
I'm getting the vibe that I think you're mad at me or I think this. And, and part of me is going, I bet she's mad, you're mad at me because this happened and this happened. And is that true or is it not? And then most, I would say 98% of the time, Bev will look at me and be like, I'm not even thinking about that. And I can go, okay, I'm going to put that to rest. Instead of walking around being like, you know, I didn't take the trash out when she wanted me to. And she just, you know, that's why my food is burned. You know, You know, that's how we get, right? I mean, it's a silly example, but it's how we get. You've been bitter at me for years. You don't know that. You don't know any of that. But the Holy Spirit does. He knows what's in the deepest parts of us. He knows the deep things of God. Even so, the things of God knows no man but the Spirit of God. So he's omniscient. So get Romans 8 verse 11 Another attribute of God is He is all-powerful. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. There, there are, we have somewhat of a power, and, and as you get older, your powers change, right? Like you become, you have to get different superpowers, right? You know, you become wiser, hopefully, but you can't lift as much or walk as far or even run sometimes. We have a somewhat of a power. We're not powerless, we are by no means all-powerful. There's so many things that you and I cannot do. That is a limitation that God does not have. And when we're talking here about life itself, here in Romans 8.11, it says, but if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. This is fascinating because in the same way we see Jesus saying, hey, no man no man takes my life from me. I have power to lay it down and to take it back up again, right? So, well, Jesus, man, he, he had life in himself. He raised himself from the dead. Yes, but this is also true. It is the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Now, there's only one conclusion that you can come to without throwing your Bible away, which is the Holy Spirit and Jesus are both God. Otherwise, that doesn't make sense. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 4, when John is describing who Jesus is, and in particular, he's describing him with the attributes of God. He says, he calls him God, he says he's eternal, and then in verse 4, he says, in him was life, or literally, in him exists life. I might be, might say life-giving words to, to someone, or I may contribute to keeping someone alive by helping them with something, but I don't have life in and of myself to just breathe it into you but Jesus does. He's self-existent. He has life in and of himself. And here it says the Spirit has life in and of himself too. I could pray for someone and God could bring them back from the dead, but I'm not the one bringing them back from the dead. Here it says the Holy Spirit, he's the one that raised Jesus from the dead. So he's omnipotent. He has life in and of himself, self-existent and omnipotent. And the last attribute that we'll cover this morning, I'm not near done, but the last attribute of God that the Holy Spirit has is that He's eternal. Look at Hebrews 9.14. 9.14. We are not eternal. I, I had a point in time when I was created, when I sprung into being. God breathed life into me. Yes, there was the, the sperm and the egg, and they got together, but at some point, God breathed life, and I became a living soul. I've not always existed as a living soul. There's no such thing as a, a well of souls that God kind of picks one out and he puts it in a body. No. 
God, when the moment that conception occurs, God breathes a life and makes that person more than just a physical body, but He gives them a soul and a spirit. I don't have that ability to do that, but the same way I didn't always exist. A lot of times with kids, they'll ask and say, you know, who made God? Because that's how we understand things, right? We understand things from a beginning and an ending, right? But not so with God. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. He's eternal. He's outside of time. He can interact with time, but He is, was there before time was. Of course, our brains go, because we can't understand that, but that's the truth. That's why He describes Himself as the one who just is, right? I am that I am. I just always am. He's eternal. The same attribute is ascribed to the Holy Spirit here when the writer of Hebrews is telling us about the new covenant being better than the old covenant. He says in Hebrews 9.14, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Fascinating concept. We'll get into this later on. We talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But Jesus, when he was on the earth, even though he was fully God, he operated as a man needed, as you and I would need to operate in our relationship with God. He was led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. When the enemy came to him and he said, listen, since you're the Son of God, why are you starving out here in the desert? There's all these rocks. Just turn them into bread, man. And Jesus said, yeah, but I didn't come out here to whoop you as God. I came out here to whoop you as man. Man shall not live by bread alone. Man doesn't have that option. I need to succeed where Adam failed. And so man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. If, if that's what he needs to do, then that's what I'm doing right now, and I'm going to do it successfully. Jesus lived his life in the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says that he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's, it can be easy to think of what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we can go, well, yeah, he's God. I mean, you know, it wasn't a big deal for him. He did it as a man is supposed to do it, surrendered to the empowerment and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And it calls him here the eternal spirit. He just is. He's always been. So, the Holy Spirit's God, number one, because we look in the Scripture and He has the attributes of God. Secondly, the reason we can know He's God is because He is also listed equally alongside other members of the Godhead in Scripture. Look at Matthew 28 with me, the famous Great Commission passage, go into all the world and make disciples of all men. In Matthew 28, verse 19, if I were to read it like this, you would have a problem with me. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the name of Chuck Smith. You would go, one of these things is not like the other, right? You would say, one of these things does not belong in that list. If I, if I put any name there, go out and baptize in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and Pastor Tom. No, that doesn't belong. Go and baptize in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, Taylor Swift. She's really popular. No, they, one of those things is not alike. But when we read here and we see go and baptize in them in the name of the Father, name of the Son, name of the Holy Ghost, there's a reason there's no issue with that because they're all the same. They're all members of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're in the list because they all belong. 
These sentences would be outright rejected if we put any other name besides the Holy Spirit alongside the Father and the Son. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, very last verse of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul's ending out his letter. He's leaving this last wish for them, like a blessing for them that he wants for them. His final thoughts, just I want you to be blessed. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of Pastor Will be with you all, amen. I want you to have fellowship with Pastor Will. No, no, that's not appropriate at all. None of us belong in that sentence. I want you to experience the the unmerited favor of Jesus in your lives every day. I want you to know the love of God that passes understanding every day. I want you to know it better every day. I want you to have fellowship, communion with the Holy Spirit every day. That's my wish for you, my, my blessing for you. Well, it makes sense because the Holy Spirit's God. He's right there alongside all the other members of the Godhead equally. He's not subservient in any way, equally there. So that's the second way we can know He's God. He has the attributes of God. He's listed equally alongside other members of the Godhead. Thirdly, and this is one of my favorite things, is you can use what I call, what's called the comparison technique. What this is, is when you see something in one part of the Scripture that is said, that's attributed to one member of the Trinity, and then you can see it in another place of Scripture, the same thing is said, but it's attributed to a different member of the Trinity, which is how you understand the triunity of God. If someone comes to you and says, well, no, the Holy Spirit's not God, you can do this. Turn to Psalm 95. And at the same time, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. I know I'm really giving you an exercise today. Two places of Scripture at once. Psalm 95 and Hebrews chapter 3. In Psalm 95, it's a, a call to worship, and it's referencing Israel's time in the wilderness when they stubbornly resisted the Lord, refused to believe Him, His goodness, and they said, we're not going to go into the promised land. We'll die if we follow you there, Lord. And so the psalmist here in Psalm 95, verse 6, he says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Let's not be like those in the wilderness. He says, today if you will hear His voice, don't harden your hearts like they did in the provocation, as in the day of testing in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart. They have not known my ways unto, unto whom I swore in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. The writer says, don't be like them. Because God, He's speaking to us and He's saying, don't be like them. When we go to Hebrews chapter 3 and we look at verses 7 through 11, the writer of Hebrews quotes it, but look at who he attributes it to here. Verse 7, wherefore as the Holy Spirit says, right? Today if you will hear His voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. The whole rest of Psalm 95 is there, but whereas before, clearly it's saying, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. Here we see who is the one who is our Maker and our God. It's the Holy Spirit. One more. There's a few of these, but we'll just do two this morning because we're running out of time. Look at Jeremiah 31 with me. 
And then also keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 10. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews chapter 10. Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. Jeremiah is predicting how after God judges the nation of Judah, he's going to reunite Israel and Judah again into one nation and bring them back into their land and bless them. And so we see in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Verse 33 makes it very clear that after these days, those days, says the Lord, Jehovah, Israel's God. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 15. The writer of Hebrews is referencing this new covenant we have with the Lord and how he's done what Jeremiah predicted. And note what he says in verse 15 which the Holy Ghost also is, witness, is a witness to us, for after that he said beforehand, And then he attributes these words to the Holy Spirit. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds while I write them, and their sins and iniquities while I remember no more. So the Holy Spirit is the Lord. There's no other way to understand that and still maintain the fact that you believe what this says. So when we use that comparison technique, we can see very clearly the Holy Spirit's God. And if that's not good enough, well, then we'll just take the simple way out, which is the Bible just comes out and says it. Look at Acts 5. Acts chapter 5. You know the context. The story is of the church. The early church thought that Jesus was coming back any day, which, by the way, is why we should be thinking He could come back any day. They were taught that. They believed that. The Scriptures teach it. His return is imminent. And because of that, they made an oopsie. They decided everyone's all right. They decided, since Jesus is coming back, that we don't need to like, you know, own property and whatever. And so they were selling their property and they were giving the money to the church to kind of just, hey, we're going to camp here in Jerusalem until Jesus comes back. Now, the reason this was an oopsie is because what did Jesus tell him when he ascended to heaven? He said, hey, when I go up, the Holy Spirit's going to come down and he's going to empower you to be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And all they heard was a Jerusalem partner like, good, we'll hunker down here. And so they decided to become communists. Didn't work. Never has. Never will. <laughs> so they, they all have all things common and people are selling their property and giving it to the church. Well, there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell a property they have and they, they don't give it all to the church. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. No one said they had, no one was making anyone do this. Everyone was making their own decision to do this. But they wanted to be seen as, as spiritual as everyone else was without actually, in their minds, being as spiritual as everyone else was. And so they made a declaration, this is what we sold the property for, and we're giving it all to the church when they actually sold it for more and kept some of it for themselves. Again, nothing wrong with doing that, but there is something wrong with telling others you did it differently. And Peter, in verse 3, he says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not yours in your own power? You could do whatever you want with it. So why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied unto men, but unto who? It says in verse 3, who do you lie to? The Holy Spirit. So the Bible just comes out and says that the Holy Spirit is God. So who's the Holy Spirit? Number one, he's a person. Number two, he's God, right? He's a person. He's not a force or a power or an it. He, he, he can be known. And he, he wants to be known by you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to be involved in your life. And then secondly, he is also God Almighty. He is distinct from the Father and the Son, and how the, the, the triune Godhead has worked things out is very interesting when we look at the Scriptures. I won't claim to fully understand how that all works. They do different things. They've given each other different responsibilities. They interact in, a, in an order and a function. But He is fully God in every way, just as the Father and just as the Son is. And when we consider about, well, how do we treat God? Well, we worship Him. We obey Him. We trust Him, right? Well, the same needs to be true about the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons we need to study the Holy Spirit is because when you bring up the Holy Spirit, there are all sorts of ideas people get. Sometimes I'll say the Holy Spirit, and people are like, yeah, let's get some good stuff going. And then there are other people like, oh no, what's going to happen? Right? What on earth is he going to let happen to our church? Because you've had some experiences. I'm going to throw it out there. But like, you bring up the word tongues and, and that really becomes difficult for people because they've had really negative experiences with churches who have wrong doctrine on the topic of what the Scriptures talk about, the gift of tongues. There is nothing that we have to be fearful of. Like there's no gift of God you have to be afraid of. People sometimes will say, but I don't want to be weird and, or I don't, want, I don't want to lose control or I don't want to… Hey, Let's put aside all the stuff you've seen and let's just look at the Bible. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not out of control, right? The Holy Spirit can be trusted. He loves you. He wants to work in your life. You don't have to be afraid of anything. You don't have to worry about anything with Him. He's a gentleman. When Peter's explaining that to Ananias there, and he says, listen, you could have done whatever you wanted to with the property, the Holy Spirit didn't force you to do this, so why'd you lie to Him? Do you see it? He loves us. He's not weird. He's not going to make you feel weird. There's nothing to be fearful of. He is trustworthy because He's God Almighty. He's to be worshipped, obeyed, and trusted. He is fully capable of fulfilling the work He wants to do in your life. He's never short on strength. He's never short on knowledge. He's never short on time. And he's never short on love, which makes him worthy of our trust and our worship. I understand that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, that part of his job, we'll look at this next time, is that his main function is to glorify Christ. That's why when you can tell the Holy Spirit working in the church, they're talking about Jesus a lot. When people are talking about the Holy Spirit all the time, I'm like, yeah, that's probably not the Holy Spirit because that's not his function. His function is to glorify Jesus. But that doesn't mean we ignore Him. It doesn't mean He's not God. It doesn't mean He doesn't have a practical part to play in our lives that we need to welcome and embrace. 
And so I ask you this morning, do you want his involvement in your life? Do you trust what he wants to do in your life? You know, in Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'll leave you with these verses. I know I've gone late, but oh well. In Ezekiel 36, I'll blame the Holy Spirit. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Ezekiel 36. <laughs> I, got, I got the dirty look, so <laughs> I won't say that again. Ezekiel 36, 24. <laughs> for I will, because you don't ever have to blame the Holy Spirit for anything. Ezekiel 36, 24. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you from out of all countries and I will bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and you shall do them. We're going to get into that work the next time we talk, but the whole idea is that we need to acknowledge this morning who he is and that that work is a good thing and that we don't want to ignore him in our lives. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, you know us. You know us through and through. So we recognize now that, Lord, that we need you. Lord, you sent your spirit to us. We need him. So Holy Spirit, we are acknowledging you now. Lord, it's why we sing to you as well at times, why we worship you. But we acknowledge that you're worthy to be trusted, that you are worthy to be obeyed. We don't want to be like Stephen who accused the religious leaders of resisting always the Holy Spirit. We want to be yielded to you and surrendered to you as that third member of the Godhead. And we want to know you, be familiar with you, experience your love in your fullness. So we acknowledge the work you want to do in us and we give you our trust now in Jesus' name, amen.